0: James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you for help this morning. Whenever we hear commands, we are tempted to obey your commands to us in our own flesh, would you keep us from that today? Would you reveal to us that it is only by your Spirit that we can seek you in prayer and suffering, and it is only by your Spirit that we can truly praise you and our praise be acceptable before you in Christ? Help us to see these things today, Lord, and Lord, give us a desire to obey you in these things by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we we began a couple weeks ago to end the book of James, and we saw uh, that there were 10 commandments. James gives us 10 final commandments, maybe 11, depending on how you look at it. But these were 10 evidences that the Spirit is working in us. We already covered the first six And we're going to address the next two of those commands, those next two evidences of the Spirit working in us this morning. So the first one, as you saw, let the one who is suffering pray. And the second one, let the one who is cheerful sing praise. Two very simple commands. Very simple commands. But as it always is, when it comes to the Holy Spirit and our salvation, there is more than meets the eye here. And it's worth us going a little deeper into these commands. So let's deal with them in order, just a two-part sermon, two points, just exactly as James has put them. Let's deal with the first one. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. The anyone among you is an abbreviated version of, are there any persons in your church who are suffering? Those pronouns have antecedents, persons in the church. This, this letter is written to a local church with real live Christians. This isn't just theory. This church that James is writing to is very much like our church. And in the local church, there are some people who are struggling. Struggling. Suffering here that he's talking about, it's not only physical suffering, as in sickness or terminal disease, and he's going to deal with that in this next passage. This suffering that he's talking about in verse 13 is broader than than illness, broader than sickness. It refers to anything, anything that brings trouble to the soul, anything that is distressing. It's likely the case that in this church that James is writing to, some of the church members have been disowned disinherited by their families because they confess Christ. the Suffering doesn't always come from persecution. For some, their spouses have left them. Others have lost their jobs. Others are having difficulty providing for the children. They've had to pick up a second or a third job to make ends meet. Their boss is treating them unfairly. Their loved ones are sick. Their children have some Disability, there's some relational difficulty that won't go away. There are people in James's church who are suffering. And, brothers and sisters, there are always people. And until the Lord returns, there will always be brothers and sisters in the church who are suffering. Sometimes visibly, in ways that you are aware of, and sometimes quietly. Privately. And because that's true, you need to understand that there are people in your church who are suffering. Some of us, let's just be blunt, some of you are oblivious to this. Some of us are oblivious to what others are enduring. Just because things are going well for you does not mean that life is going well for everyone around you. A brother 3 pews behind you is enduring in the faith in the, in the midst of difficult circumstances. A sister across the aisle from you is struggling in ways that you don't know. The couple behind you or in front of you is on the brink. But because your life is easy right now at least you assume so too is theirs. We, we project, don't we? Another brother might not even be here today. He's not been here for three or four or five weeks because he falsely believes he has to be feeling 70% hopeful in order to go to church. And that's a that's a high bar that's too high for him. And so he doesn't show up. You need to know that you have brothers and sisters in Christ that you have covenanted with as, as fellow members, and they're suffering. Which is why Ephesians 4.32 commands, we are to be tenderhearted towards one another. Understanding that there are others around us who are suffering. And then with that humble and mindful approach to one another, we are better able to see how we can in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. So I say that at the beginning, just so that we're aware. So we don't think that this is a theoretical command. The impetus of this command, though, is on the suffering one, isn't it? Let him pray. Of course, this does not mean that only suffering men ought to pray, right? Masculine pronouns in the Greek often are are generic and include males and females, so suffering women should pray as well. (sighs) Nor does this mean that only suffering people ought to pray. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6.18 says pray at all times. The point, though, the point that James is getting at here is in the context of suffering, when you are enduring suffering, the one who is enduring suffering ought to submit himself to the Lord in prayer as opposed to some other response. The suffering one is not to respond in the flesh or according to the ways of the world. If you go back through James all the way back to, to chapter 2, you'll see that all along he has been showing us throughout the book all of these worldly responses that our flesh is, easily comes up with, right? So in chapter 2, he, show, he told us that, that showing partiality to, to others in order to win favor with people is a worldly response to suffering. Then it was bitter jealousy and selfish ambition or a worldly response to suffering. Oftentimes, someone going through a hardship, and you, you might have experienced this before, someone going through a hardship looks to a brother or sister who is not enduring that hardship. Someone who is not suffering. And they become envious or jealous or embittered towards them. Why does what is that why does she get to have children and I've been unable to? Why, why does that person get a promotion when I just got fired? Why, why, why does that person get to live in that neighborhood when I have to live in this dirty ghetto apartment? Why are they happily married and I'm single or widowed or divorced? That, that bitter jealousy starts to rise up. Bitter jealousy is a response of the flesh. In chapter 4, James showed us that another worldly response to suffering would be to set our sights not on the Lord, but on the things of this world as a sort of salve or a solution to our suffering. But then, what did he tell us? If you do that, if you lower your sights to the things of the world, then those things that you're going after, people will get in the way of them and there will be quarrels and fights and then we saw that, that some of us would begin to, in a worldly, fleshly response, we would begin to treat others unfairly when we are going through hard circumstances. Earlier in chapter 5, he said grumbling is one of these responses. So all of these things that James has been showing us are all very natural responses, aren't they? You don't have to think hard to respond in those ways. You don't have to pray to respond in those ways. They're all very natural responses to difficulty, and James has been warning us against these ways of responding when we're distressed because they show that we are still living according to the world's ways, according to our sin nature, according to our flesh. Instead, and this is what he's getting at today, instead, prayer is the response of faith. Prayer is the response of someone who is, as we saw in chapter 4, submitting to Jesus as Lord, drawing near to Him in humility. Prayerfulness is the posture of someone who realizes, or at the very least, is seeking to understand and accept that the difficulty they are enduring is from the Lord. To which some of you might say, okay, I see what you're saying, James. What am I supposed to pray for? When I'm going through these trials, when I'm suffering, what do I pray for? If, if if the trials that I'm enduring are sent by God to make me more like Christ, and we've seen that very clearly from James one all the way to now, if the trials I'm enduring are sent by God to make me more like Christ, and yet these trials are difficult and distressing and troubling to my soul, how do I pray? What what do I ask God for? Am I am I even allowed to ask Him to take the suffering away? Can I do that? First of all, I want you to see this, church. It is the heart posture, the heart posture that James is urging you towards. The posture is prayerfulness. That is, it's a humble submission to God. It's a posture of faith and trusting Christ in your suffering. Sometimes all you can do is fall on your face and say, Lord, I don't know what to say. That's what Psalm 88 is. The prayer of Psalm 88 essentially says, Lord God, my soul is so troubled that I feel like I'm dying. My friends hate me. What is going on? The end. So when, 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 you, when you're looking to obey this command, when you're looking to submit to Christ in the midst of your suffering, you don't have to follow a formula. You don't have to follow the acts pattern in every prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You don't have to recite the Lord's Prayer. You don't, you don't have to, to do the, the praise, repentance, ask, yield pattern. Even though those are good practices, they, they help us, they guide us in prayer. There isn't a formula that is going to get God to listen to you. I want you to, I want you to know this deeply in your heart. There is not a formula that will get God to listen to you. It is your mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you and was resurrected and who ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's the one who has the ear of God. He's the one who has Father's ear on your behalf. And it is Christ's Spirit whom he has sent to seal you with, who unites you to Christ and who helps you in your weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So so the prayer, oh Lord, I don't know what to say, or Jesus, help me, or sometimes just God, and then tears, those are fine prayers. Those are fine prayers. Those are incense to the Lord. It isn't what exactly you're asking for here that matters as much as the posture of your heart. A humble dependence on the goodness and sovereignty of God, a simple faith that Christ Jesus is your mediator. That's what you need to know. It isn't complicated. It is a surrender of your will to God's will. Look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hours from going to the cross, that's suffering, okay? He was distressed. What was his prayer? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Do you see the posture? And though he's asking for the Lord to remove the burden, more than that, he is by the Spirit's power in him, he's humbling himself before the will of God. And he prays this prayer again and again. And three times, Jesus asked the Father to lift the burden. But he asks with a heart of faith. And the answer to Jesus' prayer was that he was empowered to endure the trial. His faith was strengthened. He was given steadfastness. And so it is for you. The heart posture of humility before God, submission to God, that is the heart that is empowered by the Spirit to remain steadfast. And this happens through prayer in trials. Prayer is the means that God has given you by His good grace to strengthen you for trials. And you need to know this going into your prayers. It is rarely the case that God lifts the burden. It is always the case that he gives endurance. Take Paul's testimony in Second Corinthians 12. Turn, turn to Second Corinthians 12 because this is a beautiful example of what James is teaching us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, just a a handful of books back before James. And we will look at 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7. And look what the apostle says. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me From becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. It's very similar to Christ's prayer, isn't it? Three times Jesus prayed in the garden, take away this cup. Three times Paul asked the Lord to take away the thorn. Three times I asked the Lord to take away this thorn in my side, this suffering that I endure. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God knows better than Paul, doesn't he? He's telling Paul, Paul, I've given you this thorn so that your life would not be ruined by your pride, and your faith would not be wrecked by your attitude, but, but I have also given you my grace, which is greater, that the, the grace that I give you is a greater comfort than the pain of the thorn. So Paul then goes on and says, therefore, and by therefore he means because of the grace that God has given me, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And what is the power of Christ? It is the power to endure suffering. The power to remain in the faith through suffering. Paul is saying, I'll endure the pain if I can have that. That's a good trade. It's a good trade. Grace from God for a little suffering temporary on earth, that's a good trade. That's a God-glorifying trade. And then verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then, I'm content. That is a key word, friends. Because what he was asking for was the removal of the thorn, what God told him, no, I'm going to give you my grace instead. And Paul says, okay, I can, I can live with that. I'm content with that. Because what is contentment? It is the ability from God, it's a gift from God to, to be content in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago. When I am brought to nothing, Christ is most glorified in me. When I am most empty, he fills me the, the fullest. His work is best seen in me when he is the one who is shining through me in my endurance, empowered by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is the goal when we go to the Lord in our suffering. Better than having our suffering taken away taken away is Christ being glorified in our lives. Better than having our circumstances changed is the spirit-born ability to endure our circumstances, to rejoice in our trials, to receive sufficient grace from the one who always gives more grace. So, if you are suffering, pray. If you are cheerful, sing praises. Part two. Now, happy people sing all the time. This isn't on the surface that unusual. In bars and taverns, <laughs> cheerful people sing karaoke. Soccer hooligans sing chants, and baseball fans sing take me out to the ball game, and pirates sing chanties, and Disney princesses sing when they're in love, and Pharrell sings when he feels like a room without a roof. Singing, singing is a natural response to cheerfulness. That's not what's at issue here. James says if you are cheerful, that is if you are of good spirits, if you are delighted and hopeful, then there is a specific type of Singing. That is warranted. You should sing praises. Sing songs that speak of God's goodness, His character, His provision, His works, His gospel, His glory. When you sing songs of praise, this is what's happening. You are like the suffering one because you're submitting to the Lord. You are recognizing your cheerfulness is a gift from the Lord, and so you're thanking Him and praising Him. You can find examples of these Songs of praise in the Psalms. If you have the, a Bible app on your phone, not, don't do it right now, but later on, go to the little search glass and click on that and type the word praise in there. And you are going to see, at least in the ESV, our, the, the Bible that we use, 136 different Psalms to choose from. Pick a short one that you understand and memorize it. We're going to sing later on today Psalm 100. That's a psalm of praise. It's short. It's got a singable tune to go with it, and it's a very good song to start with. Sing songs like that. Sing psalms of praise as well. You should know this. As your pastors, we recognize this. We recognize that the songs that we sing in church are going to settle deep into your heart because we sing them on repeat. And they will come to your mind at unexpected times. The songs that we choose to sing are shepherding you. They're part of our shepherding. That's why we don't take requests. Because we we are shepherding you with the songs that that we choose. We're intentionally curating for your heart, as your pastors, we're, we're curating for your heart a heart hymnal that will be there for you when you are cheerful in Christ. And so as James is commanding here, those songs will just bleed out in praise. We also strive to introduce songs that are reminders of God's nearness to you in trials. And songs that teach you of his trustworthiness and of his faithfulness. As well as songs that help you remember scripture. Songs that help God's word stick to your ribs so that in every occasion, whatever it is, you have the word of God near to you to remind you of the truth. Because songs have a unique way of doing that, don't they? Songs can do that better than uh, just scripture memory alone. So sing the songs that we sing. Sing the psalms that Jesus sang. And if you're worrying about whether or, not you can sing, whether or not you can sing the songs that are on the radio, that's the question, isn't it? Can I sing those songs that I hear on the radio when I'm happy, when I'm cheerful? Are those songs of praise that James has in mind here? Well, some of them are. Yes, some of them are worth memorizing and singing and teaching to your kids. Some of them are not. So be discerning. Just as I hope that you are discerning with the Christian books that you read and the preaching you listen to on podcasts or on YouTube, I hope that you'll be discerning with music that purports to be Christian because that stuff is sinking into your heart. So here's a little guide for you. And I find helpful when it comes to choosing songs of praise to learn, so that you have that heart hymnal with you. First of all, there's there's, there's, there's three, I'm just going to call them rules, it's okay, I'm a legalist sometimes. Here's three rules for you, but I think this this is God's instruction, so it's okay. First of all, God's songs of praise should be intelligent. Intelligent. Here's what I mean by that. Because this is a praise to God, what we're aiming for is not so much a feeling. We're not trying to pump up or reinforce our own feelings of cheerfulness when we're praising God. So, so rather, singing praises to God in your cheerfulness is telling God, singing to God what he's done and who he is. That's what praise is. It's not just repeating meaningless words or vague Christian-sounding ideas, fire, 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 burn, 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 river, 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 rain, 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 oh, 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 hey, 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 love, 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 kisses, kisses, heaven, worthy worship, spirit, Father Jesus. That's... Songs of praise should be intelligent. They, they should be meaningful. The, the biblical basis for this comes from the Apostle Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church. He tells the Corinthian church, I will sing praise with my spirit but I will sing with my mind also. Let your songs of praise mean something to you and to God. Let him know that you're singing to him because of him, who he is and what he's done, not just because the tune makes you feel happy and you like the feeling that that tune gives. Singing, in this regard, is an act of submission. It's an act of obeisance. It is bowing before God, telling him, thank you. He's the one who's worthy of praise. Doesn't mean it's supposed to be a drag, though, right? Rather, praising God in our joy multiplies our joy. Glorifying God is your purpose, It's your purpose. It's why you were created. And we were living out our purpose, it is enjoyable. But don't revel in the delight in and of itself. Let your heart be toward him. Praise God for who he is and enter into his joy. That's what singing praises is doing when you're singing in your cheerfulness. Secondly, songs of praise should be sincere. This is a short one. They should come from your heart. When Paul instructs the church in Ephesus on what it means to be filled with the Spirit, he says that they are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with their hearts. The the heart posture in suffering is to go to the Lord in prayer. The heart posture in cheerfulness is to go to the Lord in song. Songs of praise to Him. Either way, it's an issue of the heart. Third, third, Songs of praise must be biblical. What I mean by that is at the very least, they must be biblically true. It's even better if the songs of praise are straight from the Scriptures. But biblically true is the standard. If we are singing songs about God that are not true, then we are singing songs about someone who is not God. Think about it this way. If a man wrote a song for his wife, and yet he described her in the song as differently than she is, even if it sounded sincere, she would not receive the song as acceptable or loving, would she? She would say, who are you singing to? Who are you singing about? What's going on? We are doing the same thing when we sing songs about God that are not true. It is false praise. It is, in essence, building a golden calf with our words, decorating an idol with a catchy emotional tune, and then saying, this represents the God of my imagination, and then bowing down and praising whatever that representation is. That's idolatry. God has revealed himself to us in his word. In his word. Though he's, he's, he's incomprehensible in his fullness, we know from his word That we can sing He's merciful. We can sing He is just. We can sing He is patient. We can sing He is holy. He is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is Redeemer. He's Judge. He's Creator. He is love. We can sing that the Son died and rose again. We can sing that the Spirit is here among us. Because He told us all those things. We can sing praises to God that are about God revealed in His Word. We cannot say all there is to say about God. But we can sing what he has revealed to us. There's no need to invent new ideas. The Bible has plenty for us to sing about. So sing biblical songs of praise, where it's likely that you're singing a song that is not a song of praise to God. So if anyone is cheerful, sing songs of praise, to which some of you might say, well, I don't like singing. What do you say then? I don't like singing. Or I don't know how to sing. Well, first of all, just as learning to submit to Christ now in this life is essential for eternity, so too is learning to sing to Him. There will come a time when all the redeemed will be singing in person, face to face, around Christ's throne. And you who don't like singing will be there. We, we do that now, gathered, when we're gathered together as the church, right now, through the Spirit, we are singing in His throne room. Already, when we're gathered together through the Spirit, we are in union with Christ, and we are around His throne singing. And the day is coming when we will sing praises to Christ Jesus face to face. So what we're doing now is preparing our hearts for that day. So get started. And if you don't consider yourself a singer I just, I just can't carry a tune. Take this time that you have now in this life, take this time singing to God with the church as practice. Nobody's paying attention to you. And if you think they are, you think too highly of yourself. <laughs> They're not listening to see if you're in tune. The people beside you, I hope, are singing to the Lord with you. And if you can't carry the tune, just do your best and someone around you will help you carry it. That is the beauty of congregational singing. We all sound better together. Don't you love it when when the musicians pause, they step back and 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 the singers step back from the mic and you can just hear the church? That is the most beautiful sound I hear all week. We sound better together. And as you sing with the church, those songs will make their way down into your heart's memory bank so that you can draw on them when you're alone. And if you're having trouble breaking that that, that barrier, if you're ah, I still no Dustin. You, you gotta give me more if I'm gonna sing. If you're having trouble breaking that barrier, start start singing. Uh, To to, to start singing praises alone, start with singing with the church, okay? So I I, I don't know what it looks like to to sing alone when I'm cheerful. What I'm telling you now is start singing with the church when when you're less conscious of yourself. And then what you can do alone is speak praises. Just mouth the words. Or, or, Or look to the New Testament doxologies pretty much any passage that says, blessed be God, those are doxologies, a word of praise. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.3. When you're cheerful, just say that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or or, or 1 Timothy 1.17, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a doxology. That's a, a word of praise that can become to you a song of praise to the Lord. Or Philippians 4.20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Just say, glory be to God. Praise God. And then work your way up to Jude's doxology, the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, with great joy, to the only God, our Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. And when you've got that down, try singing the version of that that we sing in church together, the Jude doxology. And let me tell you why this is important. It's not just because James commands it, God's word commands it, and you're disobeying God if you refuse to sing, though that is a sufficient reason that this would be important. But here's the thing, because he loves you, and because he, he wants what is good for you, God's commands are not arbitrary. When, when James says to pray when you're suffering and sing praises to God when you're cheerful, what he's doing is giving us a snapshot of what it looks like to serve Christ with your whole life. All of your life. That's the spectrum, isn't it? From suffering on one side to good cheer on the other side. Can you think of anything else? That's everything. That's everything. All of the rest of your life is in between those two realities. And and no matter where you are on that spectrum, because you've been redeemed by Christ and filled and renewed by the Spirit, your heart should be oriented to God, whether in prayer or in song. Acknowledging His sovereignty over your suffering in prayer, acknowledging His sovereignty over your joy in song. Either way, you're seeking the Lord, submitting to the Lord, humbling yourself in honor of Him. And you know what happens when you do that? Your joy in the Lord, fueled by the Spirit, grows and grows and grows so much that you're able to rejoice even in your sufferings. It won't just be a petition. Sometimes in thanksgiving at others, it will become this inexplicable blend of both joy and sorrow at the same time. That's what we saw in our scripture reading Today, Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel in Philippi, they are unjustly arrested and beaten and stripped and thrown into prison, naked and they're suffering, under affliction in chains. And what do they do in response? Acts 16:25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying because they're suffering and singing hymns to God. Paul and Silas are showing us what it means to consider it pure joy when they're enduring trials, when you're enduring trials. This this doesn't come automatically. This isn't isn't just, I was saved yesterday, and I've got this type of faith today. No, this, this comes through a life of sanctification. It comes through a heart That is, practicing submission to God in prayer when we are suffering, as well as a heart of submission to God in singing when we are of good cheer. And the more we do that in our life, the more we submit to the Lord in all things, at both ends of the spectrum, the more we're able to rejoice in all things. Because we know that for those who love God, all things... Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that is the source of our joy. It's the source of our cheerfulness. I want you to think back again to that, to that scripture that Colin read for us. What happened at the end of that episode? With Paul and Silas trusting the Lord even in their suffering. Well, because they trusted in the Lord and his goodness and his provision for them, even in suffering... The outcome was that their steadfast witness was the means that God used to save the Philippian jailer. Your prayers and suffering and your praise and cheerfulness, it's not for your sake only. It is for the sake of the glory of Christ and your testimony of what Christ is doing in you. And it's with, with that that I want to take you to one last scripture. There's only two places in the New Testament where we see the Greek word that James uses when he says, is anyone cheerful? The, the Greek word for cheerful shows up only two times. We see it here in James 5 and in the book of Acts. At the end of Acts, Paul Having been imprisoned several times and beaten numerous times, he's on his way for his, his, his final uh, meeting, if you will, on earth. He's on his way to stand trial in Rome. And the boat that he's on with hundreds of other passengers encounters a deadly storm. So they're in the, in the Mediterranean Sea off the island of Crete. Nor'easter northeaster comes down and just is devastating and everyone is terrified. Paul knows, though, Paul, he knows that God must bring him to Rome. He knows he's got to go to Rome to stand trial, and so he knows also, because God told him, that he and the crew and everyone else will survive. And so do you know what he tells everyone in the midst of the chaos and the storm? He tells them, be cheerful. And they're dying from, 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 any, from any of those Sailors who have been in a situation like that before, they know this is, this is awful. And Paul says, cheer up. Chin up, everyone. Be cheerful. Let me, let me read for you what he says in Acts 27. And again, this is in the context of a ship being tossed about in the seas, rapidly decreasing food supply, no way to guide the ship. They're at the mercy of God and God alone. and all seems lost. And Paul says to the crew, yet now I urge you to take heart. And that's the exact same word in the Greek. It means be cheerful. I I urge you, be cheerful, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So be cheerful, men. For I have faith in God, that that it will be exactly as I've been told. Now, that's key. The, the, The reason, the grounds for cheerfulness is that God will do as he said. Paul says, I have faith in God, that it will be exactly as I have been told. Can you say that? Can you say, I have faith in God, that it will be exactly as I've been told? Is that where your faith is? That's what it means to believe God and his word. What God has said he will do, he will do. And it is with this heart that we trust that Christ is our savior exactly as we've been told. That his death on the cross is for us exactly as we've been told. That he intercedes for us now exactly as we have been told. That he's returning exactly as we have been told. God's faithfulness to his word is is the foundation of our hope, and our hope is our foundation for joy. We serve a faithful God, and so we can be cheerful in all circumstances. We can sing praises in prison and pray in the same breath. Proverbs 15.15 says this, and we'll close with this. Proverbs 15, 15, all the days of the afflicted, that is the suffering, all the days of the afflicted are evil. What, what, what that means on this side of, of, of the cross, how we understand it as Christians is that those who are outside of Christ, they have no balm for their suffering. They have no hope. They may occasionally experience temporary good or temporary happiness, temporary relief from suffering, but only in those cases where the suffering is lifted. But ultimately, they have no hope in the midst of suffering because they have no trust in the goodness of God. And worse yet, worse than that, they know that death is coming, death Looms like a dark cloud on the horizon, always to be feared, always to be, always aware that this coming evil is coming. It's coming towards me. It's coming towards me. I, I cannot truly enjoy life. I cannot truly experience the cheerfulness that the Spirit gives because I'm afraid of death. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast, Proverbs says. The cheerful of heart Has a continual feast. Come, let us all rejoice, regardless of our circumstances, because we know that God is faithful. And in that cheer, in that rejoicing, regardless of our circumstances, what the Spirit creates in us, that, that response of faith and hope and joy, trusting in Christ, let's feast together. Let's feast in the cheerful hope of the returning Christ.